The Drive Home with Kenton Dick on Mix 96. I'm joined by the Chief Medical Officer for Southern Health, Dr. Denis Fortier. Dr. Fortier, we want to highlight some of the amazing work that doctors and nurses do in hospitals and ICUs treating COVID-19 patients. Uh, Just to show the work that goes in, can you give us a a little bit of a a layman's rundown of the steps and procedures a severe COVID-19 patient goes through, starting at when they first get admitted to hospital? Right. I mean, uh, and just just to be clear, prior to admission, there is a ton of work by some amazing people just to get to that point. Uh, But to your point about once we determine that someone needs to be admitted, um, and specifically, there's two there's two ways um, or two avenues uh, to your admission if you are quite ill with COVID. One is to a hospital bed, uh, so you're sick but you're not terribly sick at this point in time. But things can turn as as it really does with COVID-19, and so we want to observe you closely and and keep an eye on you while we're managing your your oxygen levels, etc. So that's one avenue. And then the other avenue, obviously, is when you are really quite ill and requiring advanced um, attention, and that's where you go into uh, an intern, uh, an intensive care unit or a special care unit. Okay, so tell me when, when somebody goes into that, what are some of the procedures, what are some of the steps that they have to go through, and, and kind of how many people on the medical side of things are involved in that? I mean, it starts in the emergency room. So there are uh, physicians uh, who are involved in the care, nurses, obviously, respiratory technicians. We're talking about x-ray technicians and lab technicians uh, or lab personnel, all working very hard to try to determine what the cause is um, of, of your ailment uh, and and what is the, the right course of action. There's actually a lot of very difficult conversations with the patient and the family about uh, life choices, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's even end-of-life choices. And so those are uh, heartbreaking and time-consuming and very difficult to, uh, to, to have with, with people. Um, once that's been determined uh, and someone dis- determines they want uh, you know, everything done, uh, then, then the, you know, things fall into place. For instance, if your oxygen levels are decreasing and are dangerously low, uh, you are determined to require intubation, uh, a tube uh, inserted into your, your mouth, into your, your uh, bronchial tube or your, your lung tube, uh, so that we can breathe for you because uh, you, are, you are no longer able to do that yourself. Uh, and again, that requires enormous amounts of personnel, perhaps two physicians at this point, a couple of nurses, um, pharmacy uh, helping with medications, uh, um, x-rays to uh, evaluate whether the tube is in place, uh, and uh, getting in- intravenous lines put in, monitors uh, put on so that we can begin to um, uh, follow all of your vital signs. Because at this point, we talk a lot about the lungs, but it's not just the lungs. The heart might fail. The kidneys might fail. Other organs might fail. And so they're really getting ready to to evaluate and, and monitor every single vital organ, organ you have because they're all going to be affected. When we're talking about this, we're talking ICU. Uh, you've mentioned a lot of the staffing that requires, but when somebody is in ICU, it really is a huge amount of people compared to when somebody is in hospital for something else, like a broken leg or something like that, just the amount of people it takes, no? 
Well, I mean, uh, again there, so in, in many ICUs, you are talking about one-to-one nurses uh, or perhaps one-to-two one nurses. What that means is you have a nurse at your bedside 24 hours a day, seven days a week. When you're in a hospital ward, you generally have one nurse who takes care of five or six, uh, sometimes seven patients uh, with various uh, degrees of acute illness. So it really is labor intensive as it relates to nurses, which is why we're in we're struggling so much now with our nursing staff because every time we open up an ICU bed, it takes enormous amounts of nurses and nursing staff to manage that. But then again, it's it's a it's a degree of of um, it's a level of of complexity that's higher. So in an emergency department, you might have a respiratory tech who floats around and helps with certain um, patients here and there. But in the intensive care, that respiratory tech is managing two or three people on ventilators, monitoring the oxygen levels, monitoring if the machine is working appropriately, making sure the patients are comfortable uh, with this machine that's breathing for them. And then you have lab and x-ray consistently, constantly in there taking x-rays of various people and uh, where they are in their their journey of, of their illness or their journey of recovery. And then you have a team of physicians where it's not one physician taking care of, you know, 30 people or 20 people. It's it's one physician taking care of two or three and a host of, of uh, residents um, who are uh, also um, training in critical care. So there's there's it's very um, human resource intensive. Now, obviously, as you already mentioned, we, we still do see deaths related to COVID-19 in the province. But without the medical system, without all of this work that goes in, how much worse would the situation be? I mean, it's it's a it's a uh, theoretical question. Um, I mean, there there are you know a lot of people. When I spoke about earlier about end of life uh, conversations, those difficult conversations with family. There are people who actually choose to not go the intensive care route, and many of those people uh, die um, or choose to to uh, to be allowed to die because of COVID-19. Um, for those who go into intensive care, you know, things have changed significantly. We have learned a lot in the last 20 months, and so I think that uh, more people are surviving uh, with what we know today than would have at the early part of COVID-19 pandemic. Add to that, um, when people are vaccinated, their risk of dying is significantly less. Uh, and add to that, increasingly now, and we're hearing about this in the news, uh, therapeutics or certain drugs that uh, are being um, uh, tested and uh, appear to show some promise to help with some of our severe, um, severely uh, affected, affected uh, patients. So, yeah, it, it, it would be a lot worse, and it, it actually was a lot worse early on in the pandemic. Um, but even with all of that, even with everything that we can do for everybody, there are people, for all sorts of reasons, comorbidities, co- you know, other illnesses, uh, depending where they are in their life's journey of, of managing chronic diseases, we're still going to lose people. Um, and some of those wouldn't have had to die had they been vaccinated. That that evidence is clear. 
from more of a personal perspective, what do you make of our dedicated medical professionals uh, who are helping our COVID-19 patients recover? I know you're not quite as hands-on anymore as you used to be. What do you make of them looking and, and being able to watch this situation unfold? You know, I, I, every day I am in awe of our physicians and our nurses and our respiratory techs and our health care aides uh, and our lab and x-ray people. And I've missed a few, the, our, our um, ambulance people. Uh, they work above and beyond. They are there for the patients. That's what they, that's what they, they went into healthcare for. And so to be able to offer this kind of care and compassion at a time of great need, this is what they signed up for uh, when they, when they became doctors and nurses. So, I, they're very proud to, to, to come to work. And as I said, I am in awe of them putting themselves in danger every single day to take care of their patients. Um, I, I can't speak highly enough of, of the work that they do. And they, they, they do it every single day. And sometimes they come in for an extra shift, two extra shifts. Uh, so I, I can't say enough. I understand people are tired now. I understand our staff is tired now. I get it. 20 months later, I can't imagine how tired I would be if I had to pull all of these shifts and all of these extra shifts and all of the extra work and facing this extra acuity and facing people dying more than we've ever seen before. It takes its toll on on our people. So my hat's off uh, and and I applaud them uh, for, for everything they do every single day. We've already touched on this a little bit, but what are some of the repercussions associated with having such a high number of patients, COVID-19 patients, in hospital? I mean, from this one illness, there's such a, a huge number of people. Yeah, so I mean, not, not to mention the, uh, the toll it takes on the patient to have this illness and the toll it takes on the staff to manage these very acutely ill patients and the toll that it takes on staff when they must stay home because they have a child who's ill uh, or, or a family member that they must take care of because of COVID-19. Um, so, so all of that is, um, is, is a direct effect of how many people are ill with COVID. Um, when you have more people in, in hospital taking up those beds, it means we need to let certain things go. Uh, elective things, things that are less urgent, quote unquote. I say that because uh, surgery, some would argue certain types of surgery are less urgent and there's some truth to that, but it's only true up to a certain point. When we delay surgery and we continue to delay surgery, there are repercussions, uh, whether it's because we're delaying because of heart surgery or orthopedic surgery or even general surgery for gallbladders, those kinds of things. There are repercussions if we continue to to delay, and and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing not only all of these sick people that we have to take care of and we must take care of, uh, but then we see the ripple effect of a whole bunch of other people who aren't being taken care of because we don't have the human resources or we don't have the beds to uh, to manage. Uh, and so it is. Um, th- there are repercussions and ripple effects that we will probably feel for the next number of years. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the case. And, and a lot of this could be helped if we were all vaccinated as, as a society. 
Yes. I mean, uh, the evidence is so clear uh, that vaccination keeps people mostly out of hospital, mostly out of ICU, and mostly from dying. And and so when we when we see vaccination rates low, that is affecting the health system, but it's also doing one other thing. It's it's going to make this last for a very, very long time. Omicron variant is showing us that this virus continues to uh, adapt and mutate, and it's almost like the pandemic resets itself and starts over again. The only way we're going to deal with that is to vaccinate as many people as possible. And I'm not just talking about in Southern Health or Manitoba or Canada or North America. I'm talking about the world. We need to be able to vaccinate as many people as possible so that mutation rates go down so that we can get a handle on this and we can learn to live with it without it affecting us to the degree that it currently is in our healthcare system. All right. Well, Dr. Fortier, thank you so much for taking your time this afternoon and for speaking with us. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the, the time and the interest.